Hey everyone, welcome to the GTM News Show. I got Balaji here today. Hey Balaji, how you doing? What's going on, Taylor? GTM News, Mama, I made it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Ah, music to my ears. I appreciate that. Appreciate the compliment. Well, thanks for coming on. I um, I've been following your your content online, and we both have. I think we're both fans of Anthony Canada, um, Audience yes. Plus, and his his movement with Owned Media. I had him on earlier this year and so i kind yeah. of want to do like almost like a part two or just an extension of that go a little bit deeper into building mm. an audience you have a bunch of great content on linkedin about building an audience why is it important um mm. and kind of this new new era we are in when it in in regards to b2b go to market b2b growth yeah. um the predictable revenue model uh outbound even inbound has been challenged um in my opinion, just because of so much uh, saturation. You know, everyone's yes. doing blogging, everyone's doing the typical yes. nurture funnel, everyone's doing lead gen, everyone's doing outbound. <laughs> so I'd love to hear from you, um, just kind of high level, um, you know, wh what's your thoughts on how do we combat that? Um, and mm. yeah, just kind of run me down your, your whole idea as far as building an audience and, and how do we combat kind of the old ways that are really not working as well as they used to. Yeah, yeah, goodness. This is such a fun topic to talk about. Honestly, it, it ends up being like a therapy session for for us B2B marketers <laughs> like yourself. Um, I've been tailored in B2B SaaS for over a decade, you know, probably like a decade and a half. And I've gotten to see the market evolve. The interesting thing about, I think one's mindset, the way you approach, the way you think about your career really is important because a lot of the tried and true, a lot of the proven formulas don't necessarily work anymore. And so if you're someone who is sort of dogmatic about your marketing principles, your marketing beliefs, you might find this challenging. There's a caveat to that. There are some principles, so people will often refer to them as first principles, that tend to stand the test of time a little bit better. They're a bit more timeless. But a lot of the more recent tactical things, especially related to technology that's underpinning those tactics, those will come and go. So I started out, story time, you know, I, I, I'm Wait. a storyteller. I used to write kids books, you know, um, so I'm always, I'm always up for telling a story. So back in the day, Taylor, once upon a time, I was working at Red Hat, an open source, probably the largest open source company. Uh, they make an, uh, a Linux, a version of Linux. They distribute a version of Linux. And I was a young MBA charged with implementing their first instance of Eloqua. That's one of the very first marketing automation tools that was out hmm. there. This was 2005, I think. So this was the dawn of marketing automation. It was heady times. Marketers were finally going to be able to justify their seat at the table that no longer Taylor, would we be called the, the pretty picture department, right? Mm. Um, so this was nice. This was empowering. So I was doing things like building lead scoring models and email lead nurturing sequences. And, you know, goodness, we were getting all these great results. Back then, Taylor, you would send out an email, you get 90% open rates. You know, it was like, everybody read their emails. It's like you're getting a message from your mom. It's like, dear Taylor. It's the 28th day of September <laughs> and you're reading the whole thing. But as you pointed out, several things shifted underneath our feet 
to completely change the results that we're getting and to change the experience for B2B buyers. So <laughs> let's geek out about some of them real quick. Sweet. Um, one of the ones I just talked about was the, the birth of marketing automation. That was around 2005, the, the mid 2000s, I think. So Eloqua, Pardot, Marketo, um, a lot of these names will sound familiar to, to our fellow marketers, those sprung up. But that was on the marketing side. On the sales side, Taylor, you utter two words. This this is almost like saying Voldemort out loud. You said predictable <laughs> revenue. <laughs> I got to take you to task for saying the words out loud, man. It's like saying Candyman three times. So for those who maybe are not familiar, Predictable Revenue is this book that was published by Aaron Ross. I think he was the, the VP of sales or the head of sales at Salesforce. He published this book in 2011, and it, it chronicled the story of how he and his sales organization were able to bring in a hundred million dollars of, wait for it, recurring revenue for Salesforce. It basically laid out his model. And of course, Silicon Valley flipped out over this. Overnight, this became the sales Bible for Silicon Valley. So a lot of the way that B2B marketing and B2B sales teams operate together today is based on predictable revenue. And predictable revenue, let's be fair. Let's be honest. It's made a lot of tech companies a lot of money. But along the way, it's also burned, in my opinion, a lot of bridges. It's created a lot of really unfavorable and unpleasant buying experiences. Um, for comparison, uh, Taylor, have you ever sat through a timeshare presentation? <laughs> I, I haven't, but I've seen the videos online. <laughs> and yeah, I've heard the horror stories. <laughs> you got to do it at least once in your life. You okay. got to do it, Taylor. But she has a marketer. Amazing... I... It'd probably be interesting. I'm sure I could learn something from it. Just uh, the, so. the psychological warfare they they commit I, in during the you presentation. Hit the, you hit the nail on the head. Psychological warfare. I love how you characterize that. You should get one of those like hidden hidden cameras on your shirt. Yeah. <laughs> like, that Undercover would be great timeshare. <laughs> I'm telling you, that could be a show actually. Now that yeah. we think about it. But yeah, the, they're very very big pressure sales. A lot of times the products do look compelling. Right, mm -hmm. they show you these these beautiful beaches, palm trees, cabanas, and it, it looks great. It's not that the product is faulty, but the sales process is challenging. A lot of times they're selling mm -hmm. to people who are not in a buying cycle, who mm -hmm. had no intent of purchasing this $30,000 product. They just wanted the free buffet that was promised at the end. And a lot of B2B sales, a lot of predictable revenue sales ends up looking this way. They they might incentivize or coerce people into getting onto these calls and then they berate them, they badger mm -hmm. them with follow-up emails, follow-up calls, uh, incentives until they hopefully cross that finish line. Maybe it works for 1% of the people that they badger. How do you think the remaining 99% of the people <laughs> that went through that same process and never bought, how do you mm -hmm. think they felt about that brand? maybe not so favorably. Hmm. And so predictable revenue continues to be almost the rule of law today, but buyers are revolting against it. And now in the past like 
two, three years, they're way more empowered because of things like, you might have heard the term dark social. We mm. could phrase it differently. It's Slack groups. It's communities. It's meetups. It's me being able to meet Taylor in conversations like this mm. on Zoom or on Riverside and just pick each other's brain. Now, mm. instead of buyers going to Google as their first stop, and then going to the brand website, signing up for a demo, doing that with five different brands, and taking what the salespeople say as the rule of law, I just call Taylor up. Like, hey, Taylor, mm. I'm starting a podcast. You know, I'm trying to figure out what provider to use. Who would you recommend? Taylor's like, oh, dude, I've been using Riverside for the past nine months. I love it because of this reason, that reason. Taylor's got no no dog in the fight. He has no, he's not receiving a, a, an affiliate commission. Mm. I trust Taylor, we have a relationship. That's way more trustworthy than going to the vendor's website because every mm. vendor is going to show off their strengths and cover their warts. Mm. And so buyers have just learned, we've adapted, we've evolved. Mm. So predictable revenue is still a thing, but I think predictably buyers are revolting against that and mm. they want to own more of the buyer journey themselves. Thank you for framing that. Super cool. And, I, and before we jump into um, the solution, maybe to this this problem, um, kind of just recapping. So for outbound predictable revenue, what's so interesting that I still see, you know, AEs, SDRs, BDRs at like name brand companies yes. showing the success of their outbound strategies, and yeah. I, even Salesforce, like they were the ones that pioneered going to the cloud. So of course, when you send an email, when you call somebody, when you reach out to them, I'm like, oh man, Salesforce. I know if I've heard of Salesforce, I've heard of there their name. Like, they have so much <laughs> what we call as marketers brand awareness. That's it. And so, so much of like even outbound, I wonder like, it, and there's no way you could ever figure this out because once again, part of marketing is so hard to attribute. So hard, you can't you can't get inside somebody's head and understand exactly how they came to uh, mm. to a buying decision or reached out, but if you could figure out like, you know, especially for these like Salesforce, for example, um, how much brand awareness they have mm -hmm. and uh, just how much, you know, when you reach out, it's like, well, you know, how much, how much of a successful outbound is, is actually because of brand awareness. Because brand awareness, Nothing yeah. to do with the tactics of outbound. Outbound was just a way of getting in front of somebody and causing them, you know, another touch point essentially. Um, yeah. So I think about that a lot now, especially with uh, the companies I work with and consult with. It's just, um, mm. it's it's so much around that brand awareness that really helps with that. And then with the marketing automation, kind of with inbound, right? That that with with that whole world, we we saw this. Uh, well, first I think you said it earlier. Like buyers know they can they can they know they've seen the patterns, right? And we're trained. Um, our defense mechanism is to see patterns, right? And to, and to defense, yes. and to, you know, to have a, a defense against those patterns. And so yes. to be nurtured, uh, which I think <laughs> you, you put some notes in, like nurturing, friends don't nurture friends or something like that, which I love that, that idea. Um, but just that whole world, um, yeah, we, we can smell it from a mile away, right? We, we know when yeah. we're filling out that ebook. We know that probably a salesperson is going to call us, and so we're automatically, yeah. you know, responding like "don't answer" or "don't respond to the emails" or whatever. That's and it. so, um, yeah, saturation in general, and and then also, I think we—I don't hear this enough as well. There's 
there's a million and one ways to solve a problem now, especially since the pandemic. I actually was working for a tech company that was a local tech company, a service mm -hmm. provider. Mm -hmm. And during the pandemic, because of remote work, they were able to go national. They're able to, to service people remotely. Wow. So because of globalization, number one, we have yes. an international market where if you're like a service provider, you can get anyone. Like, I don't, we don't hmm. even know where you are right now. You could be, uh, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter where we are because we're all in the cloud working together, right? So on service providers, it doesn't matter where you are in so many ways. And then on the other end, um, software. There's like so every day I find yes. a new piece of software and I'm like, that's, oh, that's kind of cool. Add it to my list and I'm like, I have no, you know, I have no possible way to filter and analyze which software is pr mm -hmm. appropriate, which one should I use? And so back to your point, we're going back to the good old days. Like my dad is a financial advisor and I worked for him uh, for oh, a couple neat. of years and it was all about referrals and getting, wow. you know, getting, building a you know, networking, referrals, you wow. know, building strategic partners to, you know, mm -hmm. and all those things. It's so funny because we're going back to like the good old days of like, yes. you got to build those relationships. Um, and I think technology helps you do it at scale and you can do it much more efficiently and stuff like that, which is cool. But yeah. it's weird. It's a weird world um, that we're going back to that. And, uh, but, you know, I think, yeah. So I think this uh, processing myself and thank you for bringing up those awesome points. I'd love to kind Absolutely. of, any additional thoughts you'd like to throw in there before we switch over into how can folks uh, better position themselves um, moving forward? Man, you gave some really good examples. And, and I would just add, Taylor, that I suspect the, the methods that your dad has been using to grow his business and the methods that we see as, as old school maybe never went away. Hmm. Maybe we just added all this technology on top of those methods to scale, hmm. but those methods still fundamentally, I get the feeling that some of the most successful salespeople probably still build relationships, do a lot of networking, get, you know, give out a lot of value in different communities. And then over mm. time, they have people come back to them. So mm. I think those methods generally are timeless. Mm. It might be worth highlighting that I did a lot of my marketing under the department of demand generation. And even the term demand generation sometimes could be controversial because if you think about it, it's very difficult for us to generate demand where a company otherwise is not ready to demand your product. Mm. So you could almost think of the components of demand. There's this old sales formula called BANT, B-A-N-T, mm. it's an acronym. It, it, it was recently updated to they added one more letter and they changed the B to an F, so faint. So let me tell you what <laughs> faint stands for. The F is funds. This is these are the components of demand. The F is funds. Does a prospect have the funds to buy your product? Either they do or they don't. If they don't, you can't magically make them have the funds. The A in faint is authority. Are you talking to a person who has authority? Okay, we understand that one. The I is interest. Are they interested in your potential solution, your, your solution category? That may be the, the one area where marketers and salespeople are able to exert some, some influence, getting them interested. Okay, then the N is need. Do they have a need for your product or not? It's either a yes or a no, regardless of how good your copy is and how eloquent your sales uh, person is. And then finally, the T is timeline. Do they actually have 
a timeline where they're saying, okay, by this particular date, we need to have a solution. A lot of those elements of demand, we're not actually able to influence from the outside. We could mm -hmm. influence their interest, um, maybe influence the timeline a little bit, but apart from that, we have limited impact. Hmm. What that suggests to me, my interpretation, Taylor, is that one, for companies who already have demand and they're in a buying cycle, hopefully we're top of mind for them already. Hmm. Like the Salesforce example you gave with, with the Salesforce uh, SDRs making outbound calls, folks are probably picking up those calls like, oh yeah, I love Salesforce, or I know Salesforce, or I know someone who uses Salesforce. A lot of that brand awareness was already done ahead of time. So when people enter a buying cycle, hopefully you've already done your homework so they know who you are and they're gonna take your call. But Taylor, only maybe one to 5% of prospects in any market are in a buying cycle. Mm -hmm. The remaining 95%, that's a massive percentage. The remaining 95% are not ready to buy today. Unfortunately, most companies either ignore those people or nurture them. And, you know, again, we could talk about nurture experiences and how pleasurable those are. <laughs> Thanks for, I didn't know Bant changed to, to, uh, to faint. To faint. <laughs> I wonder if there's some sort of, uh, yeah, some sort of analogy there with faint. I don't know. Well, we won't go there. We won't go there. Um, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I'm going to have to look that up more. And, uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I think, I can, yeah, as far as the studies go, I think it was uh, Forrester that came out with that study of, right, like under 5% mm -hmm. of your any, your your total addressable markets mm -hmm. in in a buying stage. And, um, you know, all the stats of like 85 to 90% of the buyer's journey happens before you even get to sales. Before, and yeah. So all these things, right, like whether it's dark social people or, or uh are finding different ways to, to or, or new ways, um, new ways, new old ways to, to yeah, connect. Right. Um, and even going one step further on the Salesforce analogy, I love looking at uh, public SaaS companies' disclosures, mm. their financial disclosures. Mm. Uh, very fascinating because you can learn, I mean, mostly around what they spend on marketing and sales and, and they oh. have to be like really transparent. Like S1s, okay, so S1s for like, you know, companies that are about to go public. Um, yes really interesting because they disclose everything and they have to disclose all the negatives from their go-to-market strategy all the wow. positives so you can learn a lot i did a uh, clavio actually did an episode on the show about clavio and i did a deep dive into kind of their go-to-market strategy some really cool findings Incredible. Um, salesforce i love looking at their uh their numbers because um so they do it's like 20 billion dollars a year in revenue right um mm. they're one of the most you know successful b2b SaaS companies right um, and, uh, what they spend on marketing and sales is just fascinating because that's mm. the other component we're talking about here that there is this, you know, we all, yeah, it's just the, the amount of brand awareness, the marketing they're doing, the conferences, the whatever, mm. um, they spend in 2022, they were spending like the end of 2022, they were spending 45% of their total revenue on marketing and sales. So wow. they were spending close to $10 billion a year oh my gosh. on marketing and sales. <laughs> and you're laughing, right? Cause like oh any company gosh. I work with, like whether it's a small SaaS company or any B2B company, like first of all, there's no like B2C company that ever spends that much money on marketing and sales. There's no possible way. Mm. Like any name brand company 
they usually spend five, 10, 15% on marketing wow. and sales uh, because their margins aren't there, right? That's why SaaS is so that's popular a good point. and so effective. That's right. The, their that's margins, right. right? They can just dump a ton of into, that's right. into marketing and sales. But so this this company, right, that has like probably the best brand awareness in of any B2B company I, I know of, mm -hmm. um, still spends, you know, 45, they've gone down to like 38% this year because of, uh, you know, cutbacks and stuff like that. Yes. Yes. But even still, you know, uh, it just, it, it, yeah, once again, it's kind of putting all these things in perspective of like, uh, they still are investing so much into growth. That's just mm. to get new logos, right? Um, not even mm. to service their clients or, or whatnot. Incredible. So just another kind of tidbit I always find super wow. fascinating of like keeping that in perspective of like, um, you know, you can do predictable revenue, but are you willing to spend 45% of your, of your, your revenue, revenue. at a $20 right. billion dollar company? <laughs> are you willing to spend that much money uh, to continue? And of course, they don't just do predictable revenue. They do brand awareness. They have Dreamforce. Mm -hmm. They have these epic, mm -hmm. you know, epic marketing initiatives. Um, so anywho, that's a, I thought it'd be an interesting tidbit to throw out. I'd love to hear... We have uh, we could probably talk for another hour, but um, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I'd love to hear kind of we've kind of hinted at a little bit about like communities, um, yes. you know, building building an audience. We mentioned at the beginning. Let's talk about building an audience and what have you seen work really well? Why is this strategy creating owned media audience uh, really effective? Um, maybe starting from the buyer's perspective, right? Like, why do buyers want that? And then from the company's perspective, how does it how does it work as a as a way to to grow your business and get more customers? Right, right, yeah. So I love that framing, Taylor. A, a lot of what us B two B marketers used to do or have been doing as part of the marketing automation wave was to try to capture an email address, often by giving up an ebook or something else of value. And then once we've got that email address, we've got them in our universe. Sometimes we might send them to a salesperson, which isn't a great experience, but let's say they go to sales, they come back like, okay, this person is not ready. You got to nurture them. All right. Now marketing is like, okay, let's, let's put on our nurture hat. Uh, our, our first line of attack usually is an email nurture sequence, but those have a number of challenges. They get outdated fairly easily. So if you've done B2B marketing for any length of time, you've probably been charged at some point with updating the email nurture sequence. <laughs> and usually it's low down on the list of priorities. So you end up having people maybe who aren't writers. You might have marketing operators going in, updating the email sequence. And so the quality tends to slip. Inboxes have also become really, really crowded. So even though you've got that email address, consider that that email nurture, it's different from a newsletter subscription. A newsletter mm -hmm. subscription says, oh, uh, Taylor's company, GTM News, offers this specific value on this specific cadence. I like it. I want some more of it. I'm going to sign up. An email nurture is like, hey, Taylor, we met at this networking event three months ago, so I'm going to randomly come to your house once a week and <laughs> yell things into your window. <laughs> Sound great? Awesome. <laughs> People aren't anticipating it. They don't know what's supposed to be in those emails. Even when the content is good, a lot of times, Taylor, I'll give myself as an example. When I get into my inbox, I'm often in pro batch processing mode. Like there's spam emails, there's reminder emails, emails from my kid's school, bills, 
couple of newsletters I subscribe to. Oh, here's a message from my mom. I'm going to open that one first. We're in this just sort of grab and go mode so often with the inbox that the inbox has now become a challenging place. But it's still valuable if your message is anticipated, expected, mm. and people subscribe to it. So when you talk about owned media, owned media is contrasted with, say, paid media, which we're all familiar with, Google ads, Facebook ads, and so on. It's contrasted with um, rented media. That could be social networks. I'm sure we're all very familiar with the fact that every social network goes through this. I found a, a fascinating article, Taylor, that I'll forward to you. Mm, uh, it was uh, in Wired Magazine a couple of months ago, and it basically talked about how every social network goes through this evolution. They start mm. out optimizing for the user experience. And we were all on Facebook. Some of us were on MySpace before Facebook. I might be dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of us eventually migrated from Facebook to Instagram, didn't we? Because what the vendor will do is after they get a critical mass of users, then they start to optimize for advertisers. The users become the product. And so you start to get less organic reach. This is happening on LinkedIn right mm. now as we speak. A lot of us are seeing our organic reach drop precipitously because LinkedIn wants us to pay ads in order to reach our own followers. And so it's really important for us to, we have to continue to play in these shared spaces, these communal, communal water, watering holes, but we need a deep platforming strategy. You need to give people a reason once they found you on LinkedIn and they like your content, you love GTM news, Oh, wait till you sign up for the newsletter and see what else uh, Taylor has for you. You have to give them a reason to say, I want Taylor showing up in my inbox and I'm going to look out for that. Like, is that Ted? Did his, did his email come yet? There it is. Mm -hmm. Cool. I'm going to set some time aside. It's almost like how we set time aside in the evenings to binge our favorite show on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Like we're all pressed for time, but somehow we managed to watch hours and hours and hours <laughs> of that. Uh, I, I saw some marketers talking about love is blind. One of these mm. um, dating shows on Netflix just uh, yesterday on LinkedIn. So we make time for the stuff that we find entertaining, insightful mm. and remarkable. That's the new bar. So mm. the, the and I want to get your take on this, Taylor. The bar for B2B content used to be informational. Hmm. How to SEO, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to type, how do I get the answer? How do I build a rabbit hutch? Hmm. Enter. It gives me the answer. Awesome. And then the idea was that, oh, uh, let's say Taylor provided me that information. That was so helpful. I want to stay close to Taylor to get more helpful information. Well, now hmm. how to information is so commoditized. And then you add AI chat GPT on top of that. Information is no longer table stakes. Mm. Now, in addition to being informational, you've got to be insightful. So give them the aha moments. You've got to be entertaining. It doesn't always mm. mean being funny, but we're all emotional beings. So find mm. a way to connect with me. And then mm. ideally, you're also remarkable. Remarkable mm. literally means the experience was so compelling, so visceral, I want to remark about it, talk mm. about it to somebody else. That's the new bar for B2B content. I love it. I couldn't agree more. Um, 
a side note, how are you doing on time? I can go for a few more minutes. I know we're about I'm, up. Yeah, I'm good on I'm good on time. I don't have a okay, meeting cool, after this. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Thanks. Um I think this I would love for us to dive a couple more minutes into this because I think it's really interesting Definitely. and I've seen a lot of this. Um I think in general. So yeah, back to the nurturing, just to kind of highlight on that. Um yes. I have this concept of subscription based MQLs. Um hmm. and it kind of ties into that idea of you're like, hey, these are folks that are expecting to receive additional mm. content from you. A white paper, an ebook, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's a one time. They're not expecting to receive any more information from you. There's no commitment to receive any more information from you. Yes. A series, a newsletter, a podcast, yes. um, all those things, there's ex expectation of receiving more content, right? And so I think mm -hmm. that's, that's what you're hitting at as far as yeah. like, uh, when people aren't expecting to receive any more content when they give you your email address, um, and yet we still send them content. And so there's a misalignment on expectations. And I think in That's general, right. also what you're talking about too, as far as I love that idea of being you know, remarkable and um, entertaining and insightful mm -hmm. is, is really about exceeding the buyer's expectations. I think mm -hmm. the buyer's expectations are like, <laughs> are, are, are pretty low, but they've only gone higher and we haven't matched it, right? Like we've just right. continued to do old, you know, previous taxes when you're talking about you know, um, I always give these stories of uh, my nieces and nephews. I don't have any kids mm. myself. We hope to have some down the road. But mm. um, I, my nieces and nephews, right? Like my five-year-old niece, Maggie, she, six-year-old niece, Maggie, she talks about how, like, the other day she was like, she comes in, she's like, ah, I have to, I just got, we ordered some new shoes and I have to wait two days for ah. my new shoes to come. And she's just like so upset about having to wait two days. Amazon, then, you've ruined everything. <laughs> exactly and then my uh, another story my nephew jack is like on his parents phone and he, he comes into the room and he's like amazon is 11 stops away and he's like waiting he's like he's watching he's oh watching the truck God. he's Whoa, watching the truck come that's and he's thing? like it's 11 he's oh 11 my stops gosh. away and i'm like i remember having these moments of like you know maybe you know boomers gen x uh millennials maybe aren't aren't quite there as far as expectations, but definitely mm. Gen Z are and, and younger mm. as far as the, you know, instant gratification, having things quickly. So just in general, I think that's why we yes. see like product led growth. That's why we see, you know, really insightful content, all these different movements mm -hmm. uh, in the B2B world because of buyers expectations have changed. Um, and they want things, you know, they want things now and they want things on, on their level where when they want that's it. Right. True. And so that's I think true. when it comes to content, um and engaging folks um and in 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 general nurturing i think it's i think also too i think about this this idea of um who do we think we are when we think we can create the perfect buyer's journey wow like when you can create a nurture sequence that's exactly going to hit them right where they're at and right. just convert them and you know i think with lots of data i think there is we've gotten this like um this god syndrome where we can like mm. create this perfect buyer's mm -hmm. journey and mm -hmm. and b2c there there's some of that because the buyer's journey is so uh it's so much shorter and it's, it's shorter it's yeah 
you know, it's shorter and, and it's there's it's it's maybe more emotional in some ways. I think B2B is still super emotional and there's, you know, there's so much at stake in, you know, their job, their careers when they're making That's a true. buying decision. Yeah. But the buyers, you know, B2C side, I think we've we've gotten the performance marketing and getting that quick, you know, uh, and using data to be able to reverse engineer. Yes. And honestly, especially if you're an enterprise B2B or what you get to the really complex sales cycles, mm -hmm. I've never seen one model that could that could predict like, oh, if you hit these 12 people at these certain times. And right. so it just, it just, I think it doesn't work. Uh, people are so much more complex than that. Uh, yeah, complex that yes. I think we have to go back to what you're talking about, which is how do we invest in folks? How do we build that relationships? How do we give so much value mm -hmm. that uh, when they are ready or when you have built that relationship with them, they're willing to engage and um, so yeah, I think in general, I think there's this, there's so much at, at, at play in, in all of this, but the instant gratification, the buyers, you know, expectations have changed. Um, and there's so much noise and who do we think we are that we can create this amazing, <laughs> that. we can reverse engineer these super complex journeys. Um, cause I don't think we ever could. I think that our marketing automation was a farce because it gave us, mm. You know, we had all these things, other things at play, and then the marketing automation told us what we wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, but in all reality, there was all these other things like brand awareness that was happening, true. Um, or networking, or customer advocacy, or referrals, yeah. et cetera. So um, I think, and then also when it comes to content, you know, creating content that once again is more subscription based, like what you're talking about, like they're expecting mm -hmm. to receive more content from you. Um, so you can build that relationship and because um, what I'm seeing with my clients is like it's taking more in interactions, it's taking more touches, <laughs> it's taking longer, right. um, and and there's just you know so much noise. So we have to play that long game, invest with great content. Um, I'd love to hear just in closing, um, creating remarkable content, engaging mm. content, entertaining mm. content is really hard. Yes, like it there's is. no, <laughs> you know, and unless you're like. Unless, uh, like, unless you are like Salesforce that have these massive budgets, how can the rest of us mere mortals that don't, you know, can't pull off, you know, these crazy feats? Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Any takeaways? Any like go-to things? Maybe for like, you know, especially early stage companies, startups. Like, any thoughts you have as far as like how do we tap into mm -hmm. maybe our own brilliance? You know, right. and I think about that a lot. Of like, each person has their own story. Each person True. has their own you know, mindset and worldview and perspective that they can share with the world. But yeah, just any thoughts True. in closing about how do we tap into that? How do we, cause it's hard and there's just so much content out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do we, how do we do yeah. that? Or some stepping stones. I, I love that question. I'll give you a, an analogy, Taylor. So uh, I'm still tickled by the way of the story of your nephew and nieces. We'll come back to that after the recording. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. But, but I'm going to talk about my kids. So I've, uh, uh, my wife and I have two sons. Uh, mm -hmm. They're 16 and 13 years years old. So I've been coaching my younger son in soccer for the past five cool. or six years. And I've evolved as a coach. I coached my older son for a year as well, his first year in soccer. And when I coached him, unfortunately, you know, in retrospect, I was not a very good coach. I was mm -hmm. sort of the disciplinarian, the, you know, my way or the highway, mm -hmm. you know, do these drills. And it was taking the joy out of the hmm. whole experience. Hmm. So eventually I learned and I sort of mellowed, but I've since learned that some of the 
greatest and most creative soccer players in the world come from Brazil. And the reason there's so many great soccer players coming from Brazil, as opposed to other countries, is that these kids play soccer at school, they play soccer as soon as they're done with school. Even in the, the poor neighborhoods, they've got soccer fields, these concrete soccer fields. The kids immerse themselves in it. They don't have coaches. They're having fun. What does all that mean? They're experimenting a lot. They're trying and failing a lot. And a lot of the stuff they do won't work, but then they also have these moments of genius that they're like, whoa, that really worked well. And then they run with that. I think we're seeing a lot of these moments of genius um, on the B2C side. We're seeing a lot of these moments of genius with creators on TikTok, YouTube. We're seeing a lot of these moments of genius in the streaming wars. I mean, the level mm. of creativity, Taylor, mm. coming out of Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Disney, HBO. Why is none of that trickling into B2B? We've got mm. to actually allow some of those influences, I think, to come in mm. And we have to play with those things. For anyone who might tell you, aha, I've got the elixir, I've got the panacea, this is the exact mm. formula, my 10-step mm. formula, they might be trying to sell you something. I think <laughs> in reality, we need to hold on to those first principles, like, mm. like Taylor's dad, right? It's about relationships, it's about giving value earnestly with no expectation of receiving, um, it's about being part of the community. And then on top of that, we can experiment with ways to express the value that we have to give. Um, so one of the ways that I'm expressing my value, for example, and I'm helping companies to do this, I'm inspired by, of all things, reality shows. Mm. What in the world? Specifically reality competitions. So mm. Taylor, did you ever watch any of these shows? Uh, Survivor, American mm. Idol, The Apprentice, yep. any of those? Yep. These are largely unscripted shows. And yet Survivor, for example, has, I think they're on season 45. Wow. What other franchise do you know <laughs> that could make huh. 45 times the same concept? Huh. They could put out this 45 times and still make millions of dollars. There's something there. And mm. so I think giving ourselves the opportunity to play with these concepts while still trying to service our business objectives, we can't lose sight of that. That's where we're going to find the next home runs. So I'm going to close it with this. Remember how we, we, we kind of beat up on email nurturing a little bit, but I'm starting to tell some of my clients, you know, the intent behind email nurturing is not all bad. You're trying to actually provide real value to people hmm. who are whom you can actually help. Hmm. The knock on it is that they didn't ask for that. They didn't hmm. ask for it. What if we could nurture in public instead of nurturing almost like in this dark seedy alley where it's like, <laughs> hey, hey, want some emails? You want some emails? <laughs> no, close your trench coat. I don't want your emails, uh. <laughs> right? Instead of doing it that way, what if we took those, that valuable content and we nurtured on social networks? What if instead of having a unidirectional nurturing where it's like, trust me, this is good for you. What if we open it up and created a, an omnidirectional experience where people, your, your prospects got to learn from you, compete against each other, network with each other. 
these are the types of things we can play with to find that next level of remarkability. But it's never divorced from our ultimate business objectives. Oh, I love that. That's super cool. And um, I really want to have a follow-up conversation with you, whether on the show or, or separately around the reality uh, shows, because I think that that's fascinating because I think it creates, there's so much, especially in the B2B world, it's so, um, I mean, you see like on TikTok or any of the, sh you know, short form, um, uh, pop, YouTube shorts, et cetera, mm -hmm. Instagram reels, the ones that usually the videos that do the best are the ones that are the least edited, the most that's transparent. Because in this world, we want transparency, right? Especially with the internet, yes. there's this, you can kind of hide behind editing and, and, and with AI, oh my gosh, with AI, <laughs> transparency is going to be like oh the number gosh. one thing, right? Oh my gosh, you're and right, so you're right. The unedited, the like stripped back, here's us, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, with the ums and the ahs. Mm -hmm. and even with this show, I do very light, I do virtually no editing because I want mm. it to be like, you're, they're, they're just like hanging out yeah, with us, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, uh, because so much of it is uh, just so, uh, especially in the B2B world, we want to make it professional and we lose out on the human element, the transparency yes. element. Um, so I'll have to follow up with you on that and uh, super interesting. And then the nurturing in public, that's a cool concept too of the, especially with communities like social selling, um, to be able to connect with people one-on-one. -on -one. There's some cool ideas there. So I'm excited yeah. to follow you. Um, yeah. How can folks follow you online to kind of keep up with your ideas, connect with you maybe for consulting or services? Yeah, so Taylor, I think LinkedIn is probably the best place to connect with me. I'm on there every day, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife. <laughs> but that's actually the only uh, social network that I use now. Um, cool. I'm off Facebook. I don't really use Instagram anymore. I'm, I hope to jump onto TikTok at some point, but for now, LinkedIn is sort of the central hub. So yeah, hit me up on there. I'd love to talk shop about marketing, about soccer, or about Amazon delivery trucks. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that sounds great. I'll put your links in the show notes. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Great meeting you. Um, yeah, we'll definitely have to continue talking and maybe have you back on the show. So I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, be sure to uh, check out next week's episode and we'll catch you later.